Hi, Alex. Hey, Adam. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Liver Talks, the Liver Fellow Network podcast, the official podcast of the Liver Fellow Network. Brought to you by ASLD. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Over a month into attending Hood and still standing, as are my patients. That's good. <laughs> so that's all you can ask for. I, I should also say, also now standing is my son, who has started to crawl and stand up. Those are my updates. Okay, great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, what, a year plus three months into attending Hood? Yep. No, you're a seasoned veteran. That's right. Yeah, I've seen it all. And is there anything you're particularly looking forward to in the near future? Just spending more time with you. At the liver meeting, which is coming up very soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we always plan out our transitions like that. You will be there. I will. So will you. I will be there uh, for part of it. Yes. I got partial coverage. Thank you to my wonderful colleagues for allowing for that. And we together will actually be at one of the sessions. Could you tell all, all the people about that? Yes. If you are applying for GI fellowship, you should bookmark, and you're coming to the liver meeting, which you should be, you should bookmark uh, Monday, November 13th at 3.30 p.m. There is a fellowship application session titled Applying for Fellowship. It's a pithy title. I mean, it's a barn burner. Yeah. It's much longer, but basically it's called Applying for Fellowship. Alex and I will both be giving brief remarks yeah. during this. So come hang out with us. Say hi. If you're already in fellowship, you should not come. This will not be uh, worth, worth your time. But uh, otherwise, yeah. And then the only other session I want to plug, which we plug every year, but I have a special reason to do so this year, is the academic debates. That'll be happening on Saturday. It's everybody's favorite event. And this year, my very own Montefiore Medical Center, two excellent liver fellows, Katie Nee and Evelyn Cower, will be presenting. So I hope that everybody goes and I hope that everybody roots for the Montefiore side. Yeah, that's great. I hesitate to tell Adam who the other team is, because it may rip his allegiance. Really? It'll be an East Coast, West Coast oh. battle. It's Montefiore versus UCLA. Oh, well, okay. I'm going to say that. I'm going <laughs> to recuse myself. Yes, please do. Or just vote for Montefiore, both before and after. Okay. I won't tell anyone what I do, but yeah. Okay. Liver meeting, please go. Please say hello to us if you see us. Yeah. We would love to meet some of the listeners of this very pod. Absolutely. As we have been talking about, we are no longer fellows, and we wanted a fellow voice always present on the podcast. You will be hearing from Dr. Rob Wilichansky in the third segment with a new uh, Journal Club segment. I hope you liked it last time. But we also now have a fellow lead, which is very exciting. So without further ado, we would love to introduce everybody to our fellow lead, Dr. Patrick Lee. Hello, everybody. This is such a great pleasure to be on Liver Talks podcast. I've been listening for like a year plus now. Oh, that's great. So it's been fantastic to... Well, it's been going on for more than a year, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I retrospectively listened to the old ones, older uh, podcasts. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it'll be a lot of fun just going through a lot of like talking about hepatology every single day or at least once a month. Yeah. And Patrick, can you tell us where you are in training? Currently, I'm a second year fellow at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And if we're not mistaken, you're doing a integrated program. So you'll be one of the transplant hepatology fellows there next year? Correct. Yeah, I'll be doing the um, advanced kind of hepatology kind of fast track um, or the pilot program. So yeah, my third year or next year will be the transplant hepatology fellowship. I'm really looking forward to that. And then you'll be looking for a job. I know. That's right. Excellent transition. Yeah. 
We have a great guest um, who you'll hear from in segment two, but we're going to be talking about all things jobs. It pairs very well with our prior jobs episode, which we'll repost in conjunction with this. Um, but this is real hard data that we have looking at all the different stages of the job application process from applying all the way through negotiation. So I think this is a great topic to cover with everybody that's a trainee or even that is a junior attending. I found this very informative, even in retrospect. So without further ado, we will transition to our interview. And we're back with a very, very special guest. I have the pleasure and honor of introducing Dr. Adam Winters. He is an assistant professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and serves as a transplant hepatologist as part of the Reconati Miller Transplant Institute. His clinical and research interests include <laughs> alcohol-associated liver disease and splanchnic vein thromboses. Dr. Winters is passionate about medical education and is a co-founder of the Liver Fellow Network and a co-host of the beloved and niche popular podcast, Liver Talks. <laughs> Dr. Winters, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. First of all, what an honor to be interviewed on my own podcast. Amazing. It only, it only took two years. <laughs> my wife was like, who are you guys interviewing today? And I was like, me. And she's like, you're interviewing yourself? <laughs> so thank you, Kate. It's an important milestone. <laughs> well, what a lovely introduction. I will most certainly never hear one so nice ever again. As we do with all of our esteemed guests, could you just start by describing a little bit about your practice? Sure. So I, I think I fit firmly into the mold of a clinician educator. You know, most of my time is doing clinical, although I do try to keep some of a research apparatus, as you mentioned. I do some some research in alcohol-associated liver disease, and I'm part of our uh, multidisciplinary splanchnic vein thrombosis group, which I've gotten more into. And and more more than that, I do try to maintain a strong educational background, uh, lecturing the, the residents, fellows, and, and being involved in our transplant hepatology fellowship program. And I should say, the reason we're having you on today, besides the fact that we think you're great. I'm an easy book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> is because you wrote what both of us thought was a very, very interesting article. It's titled, Many Transplant Hepatology Graduates Field Unprepared First Job Search. Colon, results from a national employment survey of early career hepatologists. I think we found it incredibly informative and wanted to sort of dive into it with you. So Dr. Winters, kind of what was your motivation to start to study, to perform the study? The title kind of says it all. Many <laughs> transplant hepatology graduates feel unprepared because I, I felt pretty unprepared for this job search. And I think this project started germinating when I was a, a GI fellow. And I, I think I, I went to the liver meeting and there was a talk on job negotiation. And I felt it to be very unhelpful, um, quite honestly. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> yeah. It left me with more questions than answers. And when I was going through the process myself, I didn't really feel like, you know, when you're applying for residency and fellowship, there are a lot of resources that you can use. And when you're transitioning to a faculty position, it's kind of like the Wild West, right? You're so used to going through a match and getting matched up and doing interviews and doing everything in a very formulaic way. And when it comes time to interview for a position, it's very different. And it's really the first time that many of us are trying to find employment. There's not really a blueprint for that. And so I wanted to kind of understand the process a little bit better because I really didn't understand it that well going into it. And I felt like I learned a lot from the process, but I wanted to see if other people had a similar experience and whether that was something that we could study and whether that was something that we could create a resource for fellows who are interested in, in faculty positions and, and what the shared experience is like. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great study. And um, thank you so much for doing this. I think it's a great kind of first step for all the trainees and really gather information and for us to kind of have like a landing spot to kind of go off of the kind of help guide us, me as a trainee, to kind of for my future, almost coming up in like nine months or so for me. What went into creating the survey this time? This is really a, a project that was born out of the AST mentor-mentee. AST has this great mentor-mentee uh, program. ASLD is also excellent, who is the, you know, the sponsor of our podcast. This was really a project that I came up with with the support of my mentor in the AST program, Anjana Palai. Shouts. And when I brought this idea to her, you know, she was incredibly supportive of it. And so a lot of it was really just finding someone who shared the enthusiasm for doing this project and really was an integral piece and component of getting this off the ground. And the liver intestinal community of practice reviewed the survey, gave feedback, and helped really make this project a reality. So it really was born out of having great mentor support, taking a chance with creating a survey, having it peer reviewed, and then just basically sending it out and, and seeing what happened. And fortunately, the transplant community was responded in, in really overwhelming numbers and was really passionate about giving you know, a solid response to the survey, which is what, what made it, I think, at least somewhat powerful. Yeah. I mean, kind of what were your, like your lessons learned in trying to create and like distribute such a national survey to all the transplant pathologists in the nation? That using the uh, red cap uh, reminder feature, basically you have to kind of be a pain in the ass to get people to, to respond. What I learned is that, you know, these things take a lot of time. I mean, this, this project, you know, ultimately ended up getting published as a, as a brief report in liver transplantation, but the amount of work that went into it for me and my co-authors, uh, Lizzie Abbey, Cam Porman, Pranab Barman, and, and Michael Chris, and of course, Anjana Palai, you know, we really took a lot of work to, to get this done. It was a long process. And I think just being patient and being persistent and making sure that you have to remind people, you know, pretty often to, to respond to these surveys. But, you know, I think ultimately from kind of a macro perspective, if you're, you know, a trainee interested in, in studying something like this is to just come up with an idea and run it by someone that you trust. And if you get buy-in from a mentor, that's all you need. And then the project really kind of completes itself at that point, as long as you have a desire to, to get it done. Yeah, no, I, I definitely noticed that there's a lot of items that you had on the survey. Looking back, is there anything um, that you wish you would have added on the survey? In retrospect, there's a few things. I wonder, you know, looking back at this, how useful it is for someone who's looking for a research position. You know, I'm not sure how much there is to glean from this, quite honestly. I wish that we would have asked respondents to declare themselves as whether they were a clinician educator, a clinician researcher, just so we had a better cross-section of what we were looking for. The questions that I answer today will be based in the results of the study and my own experience and as a clinician educator. We'll repost the episode from last year, but we had Patty Pringle Bloom on who gave like a really good perspective from a, a clinician researcher. I don't know, you know, who responded to this, who, like what the breakdown of their job was. And so I think in retrospect, if there's one thing I could go back and, and add to this, I would add that just because I think it would be kind of a, an interesting question to answer and it would lend more to the results. All right. So with that, let us launch into the results. What we were thinking of doing, so the paper is divided into four logical areas. So there's job search and interview process, job description, compensation and benefits, and then finally negotiation and preparedness. We wanted to sort of tackle each area one at a time. And I think some of the power of this study is that so much of the job advice you get is anecdotal. I think 100% of the advice you yeah. get is anecdotal. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. 
And so to actually have numbers to talk about and, and dig into is so, so helpful to anybody who's starting the job search or is in the job search currently. Let's start with job search and interview process. Maybe you can tell us what you thought was most interesting or relevant, and then we can uh, talk about some things that we thought were interesting as well. From my perspective, I was really interested in in two things. One was when people started to do this, because I am extremely, I was extremely anal in my own job search, and I had started reaching out to programs even before I had started, you know, transplant fellowship. I was, you know, already seeing because I was a little geographically limited and wanted to see what the landscape was going to be like, and so I had reached out before my fellowship had started. So I was very curious to see what others did, and it was the majority of applicants reached out either prior to the start of their fellowship, but really the bulk of them started reaching out in the summer, July through September. And I think that makes sense. And I think maybe if, you know, whatever anecdotal advice you got, Alex, probably tracked with what the majority of the of the applicants did in the study. The other thing I was kind of interested in, because it kind of alludes to the strangeness of this process, is that, you know, I was curious how many jobs are actually listed publicly? Like, how do you find jobs? Most of my time looking for a job was spent cold emailing transplant directors, chiefs of gastroenterology, you know, head surgeons, whatever, with my resume and a cover letter, hoping that there was a position available, not really knowing. My sense was that this was probably the norm. Ultimately, that's basically what we found. I mean, I think 42% of the people who responded to our survey said that, you know, none of the jobs that they applied to were publicly listed. And then I think the second highest response rate was for less than half. So, I mean, you're probably talking about like one or two jobs for a person who applied to like five or six, right? And so you weren't really finding these on job boards anywhere. And so it's all really word of mouth, really who you know, right? So, I mean, there's a little bit of cold emailing, but a lot of it is probably based on, you know, mentors that you have trying to connect connect you with people that they know are looking for jobs. And I'm sure a lot of people stay at their own institution too. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. But I think those were the two components of this part of the paper that I was, I was most interested in, but I would be very curious to hear, you know, what you guys thought. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of publicly listed, not really in the scope of this conversation about sort of advice for people who are interviewing, because I think for the time being, very few of the jobs are publicly listed. And there are probably some reasons for that from an institution perspective, because there may be certain rules and regulations surrounding publicly listed jobs. But the flip side of that is there are rules and regulations for publicly listed jobs. And, <laughs> and I do wonder from sort of an equity perspective, if there isn't as much of a pairing of prospective candidates to actual jobs that may be available by virtue of the like almost complete lack of transparency in the process. Not that that's something we're going to change in this moment. I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't really have much else to say other than, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know. I don't know how you can foster, you know, 100% equity if, if you're hiring for a position, but no one knows about it. For me, I think the one thing that really stood out was, at least from a training perspective, really about the timeline of what we should be expecting. When should I start reaching out to programs and when should I start hearing, expecting to hear back? And there's a great part of the story where you just say, when do they recommend for trainees to reach out? And then that's really just helpful to really defining a timeline for me and really getting myself mentally ready and preparing myself for that time, that time period. And, really just knowing like what I need to do to start preparing myself for what I've been training for since medical school to do, which is to get a job. 
Yeah. So what Patrick is referring to is we asked the respondents to the survey, you know, when did you reach out? And then we asked them on the very next question, in retrospect, when would you have wanted to reach out or when would you recommend people reach out knowing what you know now being on the other side of it? Most people felt like July through September of their hepatology fellowship year was the right time to apply. And, and I personally, you know, anecdotally feel like that's probably correct as well. One part of the timeline, because this segment, this section of the paper really goes through the entire timeline from sort of when you're reaching out all the way through offers and accepting jobs and that kind of thing. I was very surprised that it seemed like, uh, based on your data, the majority of offers were in October. I at least anecdotally had thought sort of even November might be early for sort of the offer that you reach out in July and August, but there's sort of a long courtship. And then the offers start sort of rolling in late November, December, January. Did you have any thoughts on that sort of early offer timeline? Yeah, I wondered how much of that was internal internal offers. So the way the breakdown was is that I think the sort of a plurality of respondents received their offer January through March, but a strong sort of second place was October through December. And, you know, I personally received my offer in I think November and I was an internal, you know, candidate. So my sense is that a large proportion of people who are staying at their own institution are probably getting offered earlier because it's just convenient to kind of wrap it up. But I, you know, obviously I don't know that for sure. <laughs> Segment two, job description. What stood out to you, Dr. Winters? I wasn't sure you know, how many respondents were going to have an outreach or satellite site or what the breakdown was of support staff like a transplant coordinator, mid-level or advanced practice providers. I thought that information was, was helpful and useful because I think some of these things are the things that I think are important to start thinking about when you're applying for a job and you're trying to figure out you know, what you want to ask for. And so I think having a, an idea of how many of your peers around the country, how many days of clinic do they have? How much endoscopy are they doing? How much administrative time do they see? Do you have an advanced practice provider with you? What's the availability of your transplant coordinator? You know, some of these things you're not going to be able to, to negotiate for. Like, you know, the transplant coordinator is probably an institutional thing that's going to be hard to, to kind of change. But things like clinic times and or endoscopy time or, you know, your outreach clinics, those are things that you start kind of dipping your toe in the things that you might be able to ask about in terms of trying to mend or mold your job towards something that would be ideal for you. And I think that just to say out loud, the breakdown from sort of squinting and looking at medians, it seemed like most people had somewhere in the four to five range for clinic half days that included outreach and things like that. On average, about one endoscopy session. And then the rest was sort of a mixture of admin uh, and then like selection committee, tumor board, that kind of stuff there. Was that your sense as to sort of how the average transplant hepatology job sort of shook out? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I wish I had known this going in <laughs> because I, I had interviewed at jobs and Alex, I'm sure you, you did too. And, and Patrick, this is your future where, you know, I, they were doing like eight half days of clinic or nine. I, I didn't know, really know what the, what the norm was. You know, I had mentors that I could run these things by, but you know, I didn't really know what the norm was. And Alex, as you said, the majority have either four or five. So being asked to do eight or more is quite a bit higher than you know what you'd expect the median to be. And that's, that's a lot. It's important to know that, right? If you're interviewing for jobs, it's important to know what you're being asked to do and where that stacks up and, and how you want to approach how you choose your job. I think it's hard for me to really digest any of this because I feel like it's <laughs> when you're applying for the job, you kind of look for like the facility, the program itself, kind of like location, geographics. And sometimes 
it's hard to really control these outside elements, in my opinion. If sometimes if you think you want more clinic time or less or more research time, then that really depend on what kind of facility you would want to approach and apply to and eventually like get offers from. I think that's a great point, Patrick. I think that, and Adam really helped me with this during my job process for which he was incredibly helpful, but there's such a paradigm shift in how you think about a job versus a fellowship or a training place. And it takes a while to realize that because so much of where you're choosing to do fellowship is some combination of location, name, and sort of what people are there at that time because it's training, right? Which is a fundamentally different thing where so much of the job is the job, that specific job that's being offered. And two jobs could be totally different at the same place as well. As Adam said, knowing what sort of the average job is like for people within our field is so empowering because then you at least have something to sort of compare the jobs you're getting to be like, whoa, that seems like an ungodly amount of clinic without any protection or support or like, oh, wow, that's really actually quite nice. That's like less clinic and more support than I would have expected. And so I thought this was super helpful. You can really have a different job experience, you know, depending on what this this breakdown is. And it's really important to, to know and you're right. I mean, it's so different than than fellowship. And my advice is that you have to really understand what it is that you want. And I know that is something as advice that is told for you when you apply for residency, GI fellowship, and then for transplant hepatology fellowship, you know, you have to know like what you want, but you really need to be honest with yourself. What kind of career you want? Like, do you want to do research? Because that's a commitment and it's going to, your job is going to look very different than if you want to be a straight clinician. And then if you do want to be a straight clinician, what educational opportunities are there for you if you want to be a clinician educator? So there's really a lot of variety and a lot of things that you have to think about and ask about because not all of this information is going to be told to you right up front. Moving on. We'll talk about this part briefly, weirdly, although it's probably the part that people inherently are most interested in, which is compensation and benefits. So what were your conclusions or findings in this area? The compensation numbers, I think, were pretty much in line with what had been previously published. You know, there was a study by one of the co-authors of this, Mike Chris, that looked at this. And then there was another study from, I think, you know, the mid-aughts that also kind of quantified this. And in some sense, it's a little sad that we had the same numbers as the one from the mid-aughts because it means that median salary really hasn't gone anywhere. We're stuck forever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it was pretty much as expected, you know, like most most applicants were, were being paid a salary, you know, very few were RVU based. It was like a pretty split 50-50 breakdown and who got a bonus. The more important, you know, aspect of this section is that this is also a place where it's really important to know what you're worth. This data really spells out what the median first-year transplant hepatologist is getting paid. And so these should be your targets. These should be the benchmarks that you're looking at, you know, plus or minus, you know, whatever. And so again, if you're interviewing for a job and, you know, you're you're being asked, you're being told what your salary is going to be or what your bonus is going to be, these are the numbers that you should really be aiming for. My hope in creating the survey and, and publishing this paper was that this can really empower fellows who are interviewing to use this data to get what they're worth and use it as as almost like a, a tool for negotiation. And that I think hopefully that that helps. I I, I don't know. Maybe I, I look forward to hearing from someone in the next three years. You know, I would be thrilled if someone stopped me at the liver meeting or something. And was just like, one. Yeah, you know. Yeah, just one for please, <laughs> please. Even if you're even if Alex hires you, you know, I, I would be curious to see if you know if this is helpful or this this moved the needle at all, because I think this is another area where you can use this data to negotiate for what I think that you're all worth. 
It's definitely great to at least have a starting point, and I think it's fantastic to really sample the national data for this starting point for everybody. I think I'll stop by and deliver a meeting in three years, and I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Patrick. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. We should just say, and then we'll move on, but just so that the number is out there in the world, the median was $300,000 for your salary. Were there any other numbers that should be sort of said here, or is that the big one? I think, I mean, I think that's the big one. You know, we looked to see if there were differences geographically. I can't remember if this ended up making it in the paper or not, but there wasn't. So there's was no statistical significance between different regions of the country. The only reason I bring that up is, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of chatter about, oh, well, you want to work in this city or that part of the country, you know, you're going to get paid less because, you know, more people want to live there. You know, this is a lot of the talk I heard about working in New York. I guess zooming out a little bit and just looking at regions of the country, there really was no difference in salary. So that's, I guess, not really an excuse or not really something that is borne out, in, at least in the data we collected. And then let's get to a topic that I think we all will have a lot to say about or questions to ask, which is negotiations and preparedness therein, of which this paper is hopefully helping people be a little more prepared by giving them some of those arrows in the quiver going into negotiations. What are your thoughts here? I, I, my guess is you have many. Most fellows who are applying for a job don't feel comfortable negotiating with their future employer, their prospective employer. I, I don't think that's surprising. On one hand, it's, it's disappointing. On the other hand, there's a lot of room for growth here and a lot of opportunity. You know, We found in the paper that most people who tried to negotiate got something out of it. You know, they got gains from it, whether that was additional reimbursement for like a DA license or their medical license or their board exams or additional admin time. And I think the most common thing that people negotiated for and actually got was additional salary of all the things. I think like a plurality of people, like 25 or 30% of, of those who negotiated got additional salary. Only I think about 27, 25, 27% of those who attempted to negotiate got nothing, right? So that's a quarter. So it's a lot, but at the same time, you know, 75% thereabouts of those who tried to negotiate got something. They got something out of it. It's worth trying to feel empowered when it comes time to discuss your contract to ask for what you want and you might end up getting it. And I think, Alex, I don't know what your experience was, but there were a lot of places that I interviewed that were, that were willing to meet me at least halfway, if not all the way on some of the things I was asking for. And, and it is true. If you don't ask, you, you will not get it. So it is worth asking. We really have to not feel like we're imposing to ask for something that we want, right? I think there's a fear that if we ask for something more than what someone is comfortable giving us, that for whatever reason, you will be viewed in a negative light and it might impact the way that you're seen for that job. And I just don't think that's true. As long as you're not asking for like a million dollar signing bonus or like a Maserati or something, you know, as long as your your asks are are grounded in reality, I think you know, applicants should feel empowered to ask for those things because that's how you get what you want and that's how you help the next person, right? Because the next person who's going to come in and work at your institution is going to get their DA license reimbursed or their, their boards paid for or something because you you did that, you know, you asked for that and now you set the standard and now everyone that comes after you gets that too. And then who knows what they'll ask for and what they'll get and what the next person will get. I've studied my whole life, well, since like college to become a doctor and, you know, we're just in med school, we're in residency, we're in fellowship, and the common saying is like doctors aren't good with their finances. And we've been studying biology and medicine since I can remember. So it's hard to, I think that the topic of, of negotiation and even job hunting is very daunting, I think, you know, for someone in like in his early 30s. Most of my friends have already had jobs after college. 
there's no much negotiation when you apply for residency or fellowship. It'd be interesting if there was, but yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's definitely a, interesting <laughs> it's definitely something that I think is really great to bring up, you know, that we, as physicians, you know, looking for our first job, we should definitely learn kind of these strategies and kind of be more comfortable with that and having a more open dialogue about that. We don't really understand how to use our own leverage because we've very infrequently had any. And so I think that this is a, a, a time when you have some and you should use it. It's true. Most of us don't feel comfortable understanding, you know, how does reimbursement work? How are these finances determined? And I don't know. I'm not an expert on that either. I have no idea where, where the money goes. Now, hopefully, this, this data presents a launching off point to try to get your worth. You know, one of the other things I'll highlight since we're talking about kind of the ineptitude of physicians in terms of uh, understanding uh, finances, a lot of people ask, should you hire a lawyer? Do you need a lawyer to look at your contract or do you need a lawyer to, to negotiate with you or for you? And very few people who answered the, the survey had hired a lawyer and the results were pretty mixed in terms of whether people found it to be beneficial. I personally did not, and I'm not sure that using money to to hire a lawyer to work out anything in my you know, eventual contract would have been super helpful. But there are certainly people who did it. Some people felt that it was helpful, but I think you know the majority did not. I ended up having a friend who was a lawyer look at the contract, but not hire a lawyer. And I think that was because I got the sense that the contract itself was somewhat boilerplate. I think one of the challenges, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Adam, is that so much of the negotiation, especially that which is not specific salary is outside the contract. It's all this stuff about, you know, how many clinic sessions I have or how much call do I have or any of those kinds of things, which are nowhere near the contract. That's like created by the institution. And do you have thoughts in terms of either like what should be going in a side letter or like how to protect yourself for the things you're negotiating that aren't essentially legally binding? Right. It's really hard, even like an office, right? You know, that's not going to be in your contract. When I was interviewing for my current job, you know, I had heard you know, some people were like, well, just make sure you get an office and all, you know, all these other things. And, and when I asked about this, they like, you know, laughed at me. They're like, you're going to get an office. And I'm like, but do we need it in writing? And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> you feel kind of foolish to ask, you know, ask for these things in, in, a, in a separate letter. And I think this is where doing a little bit of your own homework comes into play. If you're worried, let's just use the office example. If you're really worried that, having your own office or shared office or whatever is not in your contract and you want to put it in a side letter, but the institution is pushing back on that is to ask the other junior faculty there, you know, what their experience has been. Do you have an office? Was it written down? Do you feel like I need to have this written down? Because it's very culture dependent. I think it's very institution dependent how trustworthy your leadership is to make do with the promises. And I think that maybe if you ask someone else, they'd be like, you need to have everything or everything needs to be in writing. Like you have to get everything in writing or else it's not real. It doesn't exist. I personally don't feel that way because where I work, I felt like based on my experience, knowing the other junior faculty members, I could trust that when my leadership said, you'll have an office, I didn't need it to be written down because I knew that everyone else had an office. I felt like, okay, then I'll let this go. This is not the hill I'm going to die on. I think other people's experiences will vary. And I'm sure that there are many people listening to this podcast who got burned looking for a job and, and were promised something that they didn't get. You should do a little bit of your own homework, talk to some of the other faculty at the, you know, the prospective employer, see what the culture is like, see what they got, make sure that they don't think like, yeah, actually, you know what, you really need to get this in writing or else, you know, you might not ever get it. And so I, I think your, your mileage will vary there, but just try to do your own homework and feel comfortable making the best decision for yourself that you can. 
I mean, I think the last thing I'll say is that I think one of the things that my conversations with you, but that are really distilled in this paper are that there are sort of these different groups of things you can even think to ask about. And I think it's important to have those in your mind going into the negotiation and also spend some time with yourself trying to figure out what's actually most important for you. Because you don't get to ask for like a gajillion things and there's probably like some sort of hierarchy of what's important to you. And so I think there's like, in my mind, three categories. And please tell me if you sort of group them differently. But one is money, obviously salary, which at least where I interviewed for the most part was saying that I didn't feel like was negotiable is it was like an assistant professor got X amount. But there's all these other money things. So signing bonus is usually a lot more negotiable. Relocation stipends, academic stipends, I found to be like perhaps the most negotiable. Like how much money can you have for conferences and other things each year? And then one-time reimbursements, as you mentioned, DA license, testing. There's work-related stuff. So do you get an office? Do you get a cell phone? What kind of support staff do you have? all those kinds of things. And then the third category, which ended up to me being something that I really wanted to prioritize was sort of the life slash time stuff. Time was sort of what I prioritized over everything else. And time both to have time to like pursue my medical education interests and research interests, but also time home with my family. I found that something that people were receptive to was like how much service time, how much call time, how many weekends you had. And so that was something I could negotiate for that had nothing to do with money, but could have a significant benefit to me. I agree that there are some things and you'll you'll start to feel this as you get further in the process of the things that are more malleable and the things that are sort of set in stone. For me, I, I agree with you. The time aspect was really important. I chose the job I chose in part because I knew that I had a lot of support and I knew that having that support was going to free me up to do, you know, pursue other interests that I had, like being an educator, doing research, things like that. The extent to which any of those categories are negotiable is really dependent on the place that you're interviewing, but it's worth sort of feeling out all three of them to try to decide what you can get and, and where, where things may be more flexible, because it's probably going to be different everywhere you interview or you're sort of negotiating. You have to kind of feel out where the quote unquote soft spots are in yeah. terms of, of what you can get and then- Stick your knife in. Yeah. What can trainees do to be more comfortable with negotiations? I think in your article, you kind of mentioned that ASLD or national conferences can have a more role in this, but what can the trainees do themselves to help with the, with negotiating? Yeah, I think this is a really good role for finding, quote unquote, those life mentors. You know, we talk about research mentors, life mentors. You really want to find a few trustworthy individuals who are a little bit further along than you, who can help sort of guide you through this process. I had a few of those. Maybe I didn't always really know what the right questions were to ask. So maybe that's why, you know, I didn't feel as comfortable trying to find those who have been through it before, ask them questions, be specific, ask them, how did your job search go? You know, how, how did you negotiate? Did you negotiate? What tactics did you use? What should I avoid? How can I be a stronger applicant negotiator, et cetera, et cetera. And I think really leaning on the people that you know, who you can trust to kind of give you advice is a really important step to, to feeling more comfortable. And when you do have to, you know, get in there and, and start hashing out a contract. As what you kind of alluded to was really having this study is kind of a good first step to really getting more comfortable with negotiation too. So, you know, to all the listeners out there, make sure you really peruse the article by Dr. Winters. It creates like information on there and it's really important to kind of know what the national average is for, you know, what everyone else is really have been going through. So that can really help with negotiation, being comfortable having that data behind you as well. 
I agree. This was a great study. I will just once again shout out how helpful Adam was. So I think there is, to me, so I think there is a role for sort of the mentor, someone who's gone through this very recently. And then the other two people or three people that were super helpful were people that had careers that I eventually wanted. And I was able to sort of talk to them about what early things, to Adam's point, people that impartially can sort of look at your offers, look at these different job potentials and say like, this is probably going to be more likely to get you where you're going, but you should also ask for this. And so Andy Coyle is one. Double shout out today because he'll get a shout out at the end. And then Anjana Ply, who was previously mentioned, and Adam Nikolajic were also super helpful for me. And so I thought that was a nice way to go about it because I didn't even know like what's important early in a career to get to where I wanted to go eventually. Okay, it's time. Uh, okay. Adam, buckle up because it is time for the lightning round. <laughs> we'll jump right in because I know this has been a long but hopefully helpful interview. But we have to start with the question we always start with. What was a time that luck played a role in your career? My entire career, to the extent that it is a career at this point, <laughs> was really the product of meeting the right person at the right time. And I'm not talking about my wife. It was that special guy you met during intern year. That's right. It was Alex Vogel. No, it was, um, you know, when I was a medical student, we were randomly assigned to our medicine clerkships. And I happened to meet a guy named Steve Heron, who's at Jefferson, who's a, a transplant hepatologist. And for whatever reason, spending, you know, two weeks with him, it was the last rotation I did as a, a third year med student. And I had, I thought I was going to be a surgeon, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. Being around him and, and learning from him made me want to do hepatology, made me want to do transplant hepatology. And, and then sort of everything that's come after that really was born from that moment. And that was pure luck. I mean, if I had been put on the oncology service, who knows, I might have been an oncologist today. Meeting Steve, and, and I always joke that there's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or something. There's like seven degrees of, of Steve Heron, you know, for every transplant hepatology faculty out there, there's some connection to that man. I feel like he's he's influenced a lot of careers and, and I feel very fortunate to have been able to uh, to work with him and, and be set on this path. And that, that was all pure luck. What is your favorite non-liver talks podcast? Okay. This is interesting. Okay. <laughs> One is I am a huge fan of the Brian Lair show. Uh, okay. I don't know. I listen to it almost every day in podcast form. That's really kind of an inside New York yeah. show. It's like a very famous <laughs> local radio show. And the other thing I listen to with my lovely wife when we go on road trips is a, this is kind of an embarrassing admission, but we listen to the Doughboys podcast, which is a comedic podcast where they review chain restaurants like McDonald's and Wendy's. And, and though we don't eat at those restaurants, the podcast is pretty funny. Sure you don't. <laughs> what are you trying to say <laughs> what are you trying to say <laughs> we almost named our podcast Doughboys but we won't <laughs> we won't liver talks instead the last question the most important question what's your favorite liver cell didn't you ask me this last year no we got asked it on that other podcast we're not going to mention oh okay yeah yeah I think I, I gave the answer the hepatocyte then and I'm going to give it again I think that's the right answer thank you so much Dr. Adam Winters I found this very informative. I think our trainees will as well. They can certainly reach out to you, probably via Twitter, if they have questions as their job process goes on. Am I allowed to offer you as such? Sure. Yeah, of course. Please, please do. Okay. Please reach out to uh, so the offer has been made. Thank you, Patrick Lee. This was his first time on the podcast, but not last time. So it was great having a trainee voice as we talked about this, and there will be a trainee voice for every interview from here on out. Next up is our quick journal club with Dr. Rob Wilichansky. We are now back with our 
incredible fellow correspondent from the journal Hepatology, Dr. Rob Wilichansky. He has brought us an excellent article from Hepatology to discuss in depth related to the Enhanced study, uh, which was looking at Cilla Delpar for PBC. So Rob, please take it away and welcome back. Well, thanks again, guys, for having me. Really happy to be here once again. The study I wanted to talk to you about today um, investigates a new treatment option for primary biliary cholangitis, or PBC, which, of course, as you guys know, is very much needed. Uh, so PBC, of mm-hmm. course, while while rare, has can be quite debilitating, has few options for treatment, and this is especially true for those who don't respond to the first-line therapy of ursodeoxycholic acid or ursodiol. The remaining options like obetacolic acid or off-label use of fibrates might have some efficacy, but the options are limited and the quality of life can really suffer, especially in terms of the two most common symptoms of fatigue and pruritus. And so this is why the enhanced trial is such a, a welcome development. It's a phase three double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial investigating the safety and efficacy of oral celadelpar in patients with PBC who either did not tolerate or did not respond to ursodiol. And so celadelpar is a selective peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor delta agonist, or PPAR delta. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) PPAR delta is a transcription factor that's expressed in hepatocytes and cholangiocytes. It's thought to regulate multiple cellular processes, including suppressing bile acid synthesis and inducing anti-inflammatory effects in macrophages, including cupfer cells. The thought was that it would be efficacious in PBC. And so the enhanced study was conducted at 111 sites in 21 countries. There were 265 eligible patients randomized one-to-one-to-one to receive either placebo or celadelbar 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams. The trial, interestingly, was, was in, you know, initially supposed to be 12 months long. Mm-hmm. It was actually in full swing when it was stopped unexpectedly due to an adverse event in another trial. It was being investigated in a completely different trial that was adverse event was actually ultimately deemed unrelated to the drug. Womp womp. Now, unfortunately, all of the endpoint times were then amended to three months when they were supposed to be 12 months, actually. And so the primary endpoint here, they looked at a composite biochemical response of reduction of alkaline phosphatase of less than 1.67 times upper limit of normal, which is the sort of magic number that's been used in other trials in PVC. Mm-hmm. At least 15% alkphos decrease from baseline and normalization of total bilirubin. The key second or second, excuse me, secondary endpoints were the proportion of patients with alkphos normalization at month three and changing pruritus scores at month three. Even despite the shortened length of the trial, um, at three months, 78% of people in the high-dose treatment group and 58% in the low-dose treatment group met the primary composite endpoint compared to only 12% in placebo group, which is a significant result. Importantly, there was also a dose-dependent increase in the number of patients reporting a decrease in pruritus and the mean reduction of pruritus in the cell delpar 10 milligram group was significantly greater than placebo. Cell delpar also led to uh, durable reductions in liver biochemistries, IgM, and lipids at three and six months compared to placebo. And the 
serious adverse events were pretty rare. The most common adverse event was actually paritis, but notably this was most frequently reported in the placebo group. Overall, a pretty good result. In general, for patients with PDC, this, you know, Saladelpar can potentially improve disease activity and quality of life. And, you know, there are other medications in this drug class that are concurrently in clinical trials. So I'm looking forward to even longer term trials. And hopefully we can get some trials that are a bit longer as this one was intended to be. But I, you know, I'd like to see, you know, this effects on other important clinical outcomes, including other, you know, cirrhosis related, cirrhosis related endpoints, for example, decompensation, mortality, et cetera. But, you know, both as, you know, either monotherapy or in combination with other novel agents. Uh, so excited to see that. I'd love to hear hear your thoughts and and what you guys thought of the trial. Right. So just a a couple of things I think to point out, right, is that this trial did include some patients with cirrhosis, but they had to be compensated, right? There's very few of them, but they did include cirrhosis patients and there didn't really seem to be any increased adverse events for patients with cirrhosis. To me, obviously, as you pointed out about the the low follow-up time, you know, it would be very interesting to see this, you know, data sort of spread out over a longer period of time. The puritis improvement, the secondary endpoint is, I think, very tantalizing to those of us who struggle with controlling that particular symptom in PBC patients. You know, I, I don't think anyone, the data for whether ursodile even helps with puritis, I think is, is pretty limited if, if non-existent. And then you start going down the road of naltrexone, which I personally have had difficulty having PBC patients tolerate, or rifampin, and it becomes very difficult. So it is very promising to see the symptom improvement from a puritis standpoint, and you know, hopefully, this is something that you know we can that gets looked at further. I'm sure, Rob, you don't know, and, and Alex and I certainly don't know what the future holds for this particular drug after this kind of aborted trial. But my my sense is that at least this mechanism of action will fight to live or live to fight another day. Yeah, I agree. I. I wish the trial had been able to go at least a year. I think it's on the positive side, incredibly impressive. What percentage of patients, especially on the higher dose, which my guess is that like the way you would use this is start at five milligrams and then try to get most people to 10 if they don't have a response. But the fact that even within three months, almost 80% of the patients met the primary endpoint is very impressive and exciting, but it would be nice to see a little longer. And I think by virtue of, as Rob said, that it was 111 sites in 21 countries just to get three arms of almost 90 patients sort of gives you a sense of how hard it is to conduct some of these trials. So it's pretty devastating to have one end so early, especially one that was so well designed. I don't know. I mean, what's your sense? If this was approved, would you use it based on this data or would you want to see some longer term data before uh, starting to use it in, in our patients? You know, the trial did have some data in folks who were able to complete to month six. The response did seem to be durable, although we didn't get the full numbers of study participants. That data does seem pretty promising as well. It just it does seem to have a pretty durable response, at least through half the year. But I agree. I mean, I think we, we do need to see a little bit more data. Obviously, the preceding phase two trial did show a durable response in, in these patients for up to a year. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of signal there. And yeah, I, I agree. I think it's promising. And everyone who treats PVC struggles with the refractory or intolerant patient to, to ursodile. I know it's technically considered like a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, but the reality is that all these patients were still on urso. So it's it's more that they decided, I guess, not to 
have a beta-cholic acid as one of the arms as sort of like the current gold standard second line therapy. It would be Celadelpar plus Ursodiol for these patients, but I'm very excited about this because I have a lot of patients that are just on Urso and not getting the response that we might want. And as we've discussed, there aren't great options for them. And this one seems like it could potentially be very promising. Rob, anything else that you wanted to mention about this study before we release you back to Fellowship. Your, your your beautiful life in Boston. <laughs> I guess the last sort of statistic that I thought was kind of cool that I didn't mention was that there was also a good proportion of folks in the high dose group who completely normalized their ALKFOS, which is not something you're yep. always able to achieve. About 27% of people were able to achieve that. And I thought that was actually pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, thank you so much for bringing this article to us and explaining it to us. We look forward to the next contribution from hepatology. And at that time, we will have come up with a pithy title for this segment. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of pressure there, guys, but I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. And with that, Adam, I will see you at the liver meeting very soon. And we hope to see many or any of the listeners of this podcast at that time. But until then, thank you to Taylor Guterman, our fearless editor. Thank you to Andy Coyle for listening. And... Thank you, Adam, for being my forever co-host. Thank you, Ox. That's so sweet. I can't wait to see you soon. And you too, Rob. And I should just say at the very end, our great new fellow lead, Patrick, the reason why we didn't hear him during the lightning round was not because we demanded to do it ourselves, but because he had a connectivity issue within the hospital. But he will be here for the lightning round next time. Until next time, goodbye, all. And uh, thank you for listening, as always. Bye. Bye.